G'day, and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. This week, in episode 16, we'll look at the siege which developed at Glenrowan after the gang's elaborate plans unravelled. The Glenrowan siege was to mark the end of the Kelly outbreak. In the Gerildery letter, Ned had declared war on the Victorian authorities and the gang had laid a trap that would bring large numbers of police to the north into a deadly ambush. But after an unexpected 31-hour delay in the train's arrival, the gang's ability to remain in control of the scene and dictate the outcome was dissolving. We left the story last episode just as Ned had decided to abandon the failing action and leave the area but the whistle of an approaching train indicated they may now have left their run too late, and so the inevitable disaster descended on Ann Jones's hotel at Glenrowan. I'll remind any new listeners that we are heading into the end stages of the Kelly saga now, and the following episode or two will bring it all to a close. If you have an interest in the Kelly story, you might get a lot more out of it by starting at the beginning around episode 2 or 3, before listening through to this one, so that you can make more sense of the story that way. As always, there's some supporting material and the reference list for this episode at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and that's history spelt I-E-S. And contact details can be found there too. I haven't yet written the final episode for the next fortnight, so I'm a bit unsure if I can do it justice in one episode or if I'll need to run it across two. But I am looking forward, after that, to getting to a few much shorter single-episode tales that will share some interesting and quirky stories from Australia's past and be totally unconnected with the Kellys, or indeed with any bushrangers at all. So I hope you'll stick with me for that. They should be short, sharp and entertaining if I get it right. More on that next time anyway. And I'd like to share just one more thought before jumping into today's episode. Presenting this Kelly saga has given me my first opportunity at producing a podcast. It was quite nerve-wracking at first, but I got more comfortable as we progressed. And I know for a couple of listeners the Kelly saga has been a bit too detailed and dragged out. So hopefully those listeners will enjoy the single-episode stories much more. But for those of us with a strong interest in the Kelly story, I know many of you have loved it as much as me, and so it's been well worth the research and writing efforts each fortnight. I wanted to mention that right from the beginning, I've had the support and the encouragement of a number of listeners who have really helped me build confidence with their kind words and have made the process such a joy. So in particular, I'd like to thank Rob C., Chris from the Age of Victoria podcast, Siobhan from the Myth, Law and Legend podcast, Lee from Viking Age podcast, and also listeners Russell, David, Jesse, Rob O., Wendy and Martin, who all took the trouble to message or email me quite early on and to offer encouragement and let me know they were enjoying the unfolding episodes. Oh, and Rosemary, who tells me she listens at night and always falls asleep, but loves it anyway. (laughs) Those early responses really help me focus and work hard to keep to the fortnightly programming, even when I felt I may have bitten off a bit more than I could chew. So anyway, thanks again. Okay, well we better get on with the story now then. We have reached the pinnacle and probably the most well-known part of the Kelly story. And it's a big part. So let's get stuck in. So just to recap briefly, the Kelly gang had decided to take on the Victorian authorities head on. And indeed, according to Ned, the whole British Empire if need be. Kelly was nothing if not bold and overly ambitious. Joe's old friend Aaron Sherratt who they believed had turned police informant against the gang, was murdered in front of his wife and the police who were being billeted in his home at Woolshed. The police were expected to ride out and take the news of the Kelly gang murdering Aaron to nearby Beechworth, where the news would then be telegraphed to the regional headquarters at Benella and to Melbourne. 
The response would be a train loaded with policemen, horses, equipment and probably other senior authorities speeding to the northeast to set out and search for the murderous gang. But the Kellys intended to derail the speeding train, well short of its destination, killing and disabling the majority on board, with the possible intention of then killing any survivors or taking them hostage to serve as bargaining chips for future negotiations with the authorities. Some historians also believe that the climax of this action was, with the support of an unknown number of sympathisers, that is, a selector army, to then rob the unprotected Benalla Bank in order to bankroll and declare a Republic of Northeastern Victoria. But whatever the extent of the planned action, the train, which they expected within hours of Aaron's murder, failed to arrive in the early hours of Sunday. Apparently, Joe and Dan had made themselves so ferocious at Aaron's hut that the policemen hiding there refused to venture out and report the murder until quite late the following morning. Reports of the Kelly outrage were not sent to Benalla and Melbourne until Sunday afternoon, and the personnel and equipment required for a response were not loaded into a train until 10pm on that Sunday night. With stops on the way north to collect police from Benalla, delaying their actual arrival even further. Instead of the expected special train arriving within several hours, the gang waited more than 30 hours at the site of their planned derailment and became increasingly confused and concerned about the police response, or the lack of it. And they began fading from fatigue and lack of sleep. Towards 3am on the Monday morning, Ned felt that the original plan was probably now beyond redemption, and with the gang becoming increasingly tired, decided that all the civilians held over the last day and a half should now be released, and they themselves could head back into the hills and reconsider. Ned was just giving the crowd his usual departure lecture before releasing them, when Joe burst in, alerting Ned to the train whistles they could just now hear down the Melbourne side of the tracks. So... Now it seemed it was do or die after all. The crowd were instead told to stay put inside the hotel while Ned went to investigate. It seemed odd that the train should be whistling wildly and not just speeding past. Something unexpected was happening again. Earlier on the Sunday evening, Ned had allowed the Glenrowan schoolmaster, that's Thomas Kernow, to leave the hotel and return to his home with his wife, sister and his children. Kurnow had spent the day deliberately ingratiating himself with the Kellys and convincing them he was with them in their cause, thus he had persuaded Ned he would be no threat to their plans. Ned seemed often to be ready to take a man at his word, and had shown himself on several occasions during the Kelly outbreak to trust those he may more wisely have questioned, like Living, who took his letter at Gerildery, promising to get it published. But once again, Ned made a bad decision, which would result in his plans being undermined. Though we might add this time that fatigue may have made Ned even less competent at judging risk than usual. Kurnow was, in truth, a fine, upstanding member of the community and no Kelly sympathiser. He was rightly appalled at the carnage and loss of life that would occur if the train did speed into the embankment north of Glenrowan and derail there and so he took every opportunity to befriend and build trust in the hope that he may be released, and then he'd try and warn the authorities and stop the train before the disaster could occur. After a day of currying favour with the gang members, and as the evening wore on, he reminded Ned that his pregnant wife was unwell, and the family would benefit from returning home, with him there to care for them. So, when Ned was preparing to round up the local constable from Glenrowan Station, Located near Kurnow's home, Kelly did let Kurnow go, warning him to, quote, go straight to bed and don't dream too loud, unquote. Once home, Kurnow spoke with his wife and sister about his duty to try and stop the train and to avoid the carnage. As we might expect, his wife became hysterical with fear and she begged him not to go. His actions might not only bring danger to himself, but also to the women folk and the children. But his sister remained calm, and she understood the necessity of trying to prevent such a calamitous loss of life, so she helped settle his wife, 
and she set her brother to his task with her best wishes. Kurnow took her red llama scarf, a candle and some matches, and he headed down the railway line to try and get the train to pull up so he could warn them. Around 3am, the driver of the pilot train, ahead of the special police train, spotted a man standing on the side of the line, shining a candle through a red scarf. He came to a stop and he asked what was going on. Kurnow informed him that the Kellys had pulled up the rails north of Glenrowan, and were probably still at Glenrowan, though he failed to say where. After accomplishing this critical warning, Kurnow sped back to his home to be with his family. Hiding the red scarf and the wet clothes he was wearing, should the Kellys check in, he would be tucked up in bed and could deny any involvement. And let me just mention that apparently, according to Caulfield, part of that red scarf is now held by the National Trust Victoria. <laughs> Brilliant, eh? After the special police train stopped at Benella to load Hare and his men on, and being warned that there were some rumours the Kellys had explosives, the police there had decided to run a pilot train ahead of the main train as a precaution, and the rest of the journey north of Benella would be done at a more sedate speed to allow for sudden braking should it be required. The pilot train would also carry extra guards to keep a lookout, and the main train would follow some two or three hundred yards behind. Now, that pilot train driver blew his whistle with the warning danger signal, and he displayed his red danger lamp at the rear to alert the special police train following behind, and they now both stopped and shared the news that Kurnow had passed on and considered what to do. It was that whistling that Joe had heard as Ned was readying to leave Glenrowan. Riding down the line now, Ned saw that the train was already stopped and he saw the lights on board were being extinguished. It must have been clear then that the police were now aware of their presence at Glenrowan and that the old plan was now completely shot. There would be no derailment now. The gang might have to face the full trainload of armed police. They needed to decide what to do. Ned returned to the inn and he extinguished the lights there. With their plans now in complete disarray, the gang readied for the next unknown engagement. They heard the trains approaching again, but this time at low speed and pulling up at the Glenrowan station nearby. Now, at this point, we may wonder why the Kelly gang did not take the opportunity to escape and ride off into the hills that they knew could hide them, before the police had even got themselves off the train. And surely this would have been the better course of action, given their extreme fatigue, having now been awake for two days. For those of the opinion that there were a good number of sympathisers waiting in the wings, waiting to form their new republic, perhaps the gang felt they must continue with the plan, or at least hold off the police until they could be warned and dispersed. Their decision to stay might add credence to that theory then. I find it a little bit hard to think that a good number of supporters, any kind of selector army, would have waited two days in the bush with no sleep too. Some also ponder that perhaps the gang were just weary of the hunted lifestyle and the constant hiding, and that perhaps they felt a direct confrontation was the only course of action left to them. Later, Kelly himself did mention to the press that he was sick of being hunted like a dog and getting no rest. Indeed, that he no longer cared what became of him. He even suggested the armour was designed for a fight to the death, enabling him to take as many of the hated police with him as possible. But of course, at the time he was speaking, it was all over and he was exhausted, defeated and no doubt desperately tired and depressed. Such an explanation would not be unexpected then. And of course, in the end, he was facing a great many more police than his original plan had intended. So his failure would have dampened his spirits on top of all else. And Ned, at least, seems to have put a great store in that armour, and though it didn't stop him from being injured very early on, he still insisted that it allowed them great advantage and protection. Whatever the internal decisions and motivations of the gang, they did not try and escape. Instead, they suited up and prepared to face the full force of a trainload of police at Glenrowan. 
expecting success in that scenario surely has to be beyond even the overly optimistic expectations of Ned Kelly's ego. So the train pulled in to the Glenrowan station not long after 3am, Monday, June 28th. While they unloaded their horses and the police readied themselves for an unknown action, the Kellys, donning their armour inside the Glenrowan Inn, could hear them and even see them in the bright moonlight. The women folk that had accompanied the men on the train made themselves comfortable at the station, while the members of the press found obliging people to latch on to or suitable positions to observe the preparations. There was John McWhorter from The Age, Joe Melvin from The Argus, George Allen from The Daily Telegraph, and Thomas Carrington from The Australasian Sketcher, a journal which provided a great many illustrations that are known to us today, depicting the Glenrowan siege and a great many other scenes from the reporting of the Kelly outbreak. And of course I will post one or two of those fantastic sketches on the website. Initially, the police didn't know where the gang might be in town, or even if they were still there, so they began just readying themselves for a hunt. But they pretty soon got intelligence from the stationmaster's house, where the frightened stationmaster's wife told them that the Kellys were holed up at Ann Jones Hotel, with about 40 people held captive there. While the gang were distracted, getting their armour on, Constable Bracken took the opportunity to sneak out of the hotel, he made his way to the station, finding Hare and also telling him about the situation in the hotel. Now, I find this knowledge very disturbing, considering what happened in the following hours. A number of police, and the command at least, were aware now that while the Kellys were inside the inn, it also contained a large number of civilian hostages. Unlike a modern police force, who are clear about their duty and the need to preserve and protect bystanders, Hare and his force did not appear to be concerned about the well-being of the civilians at all, and no plans were formulated about how they might get them out unharmed. Hare positioned his men around the inn. The gang made their way out onto the darkened veranda, where they could see the moonlit police in the open area ahead of them. Seeing Hare preparing to lead a charge, Ned took aim at him. Normally an excellent shot, Ned's aim was now hampered by the bulk of his armour, and firing his rifle awkwardly, he only managed to hit Hare in the wrist, though it was a substantial injury, and it would soon remove Hare from the field. Following this first shot, the other members of the gang also opened fire on the police, and they scattered, taking cover, and then returning a volley of shots towards the shadowy figures on the veranda. Others sought cover behind trees and fences, while Kelly shouted at them, Fire away, you bloody dogs! You can't hurt me! I'm in iron! He was wrong, though. Within minutes, Ned had taken a nasty shot to his right foot and a more debilitating injury to his left arm, and indeed, while neither were fatal, they did, in fact, severely impede his activity right from this first contact. The bullet to his arm reduced his ability to reload and to aim, so rather crucial activities for any prolonged fight. One of the reporters noted that the whole of the front of the building seemed to be lit up from the gang's fire and the police return fire was even more ferocious. Bullets were said to be flying overhead and around for several minutes, before noting that the resulting gun smoke, hovering in the night air, completely obscured the building. And though the firing continued in an undisciplined way for several minutes, nothing could really be seen, and no finesse was being used. It was estimated the police would have fired more than 60 shots, and the Kellys perhaps 40. Some sources report that Joe suffered an injury to his calf during this barrage too, and the gang soon retreated into the building. After three or four minutes, the police volley slowed, and there was a brief lull in the firing. And it's about now we all wonder about those poor townsfolk who were almost let go by the gang, but who now must be terrified and cowering in various rooms behind the flimsy wall of Ann Jones's hotel. 
The brief break allowed the screams and yells from the civilians cowering on the floors inside to be heard. But no immediate change, of course, was ordered by the police commanders. The building was new and of good quality, but many of the police weapons were large calibre, which the weatherboards could not withstand. Bullets and shot were easily entering the front rooms through the smashed windows and straight through the walls. Now, in 2009, Tony Robinson from the UK program Time Team fame made a program at Glenrowan called Ned Kelly Uncovered, which followed a local archaeological dig there at Glenrowan. It was quite an interesting overview of the story, and despite many years of souvenir hunters scouring the Glenrowan sites, the archaeological team were able to uncover and identify a number of items from the siege. Many bullets and casings were found, some of which were matched to Kelly guns and rifles, and many others identified which would have been from the police weapons. They also reconstructed a model of the weatherboard building, and they fired from some of the weapons used into that structure, noting the damage done. And it was truly terrifying to imagine being inside there. The external walls provided very little in the way of protection and indeed sent splintered shrapnel ricocheting all around the room instead. The reenactment on the show did seem to indicate that most projectiles did not make it past the second internal wall, at this stage anyway, so those in the rear rooms were spared the worst early on. Though the police moved closer and surrounded the building as the siege wore on, so things really just continued to get worse for those unfortunate enough to have been on the site at the time. The first civilian, badly injured, was probably the local stonebreaker named George Metcalf. He seemed to have been struck in the eye by a ricocheting bullet. Taken later to a Melbourne hospital, he died some months later from his injuries. The police always denied it was one of their bullets that hit Metcalf, but they did pay for all his medical and accommodation bills up to his death. Young Jane Jones was with her mother in the kitchen at the rear, but despite being a good way into the building, she was also hit by a ricocheting lead shot. Luckily, while it broke the skin above her ear, it did not penetrate deeply, and she would survive the ordeal, though more grief was to come for the family. A short time later, Anne Jones was told her 13-year-old son, John, who was on the floor in the bar, had been hit, and Anne dashed into the dangerous room to discover the injury was very serious indeed, with poor John screaming in pain. The bullet had entered his left hip and had exited through his ribs, so we can imagine the weapon had caused substantial damage to his internal organs. A couple of fellows carried him back to the rear room and they tried to make him comfortable there, as firing outside subsided to just the odd shot. They did get John out later on, and he was taken to the hospital at Wangaratta, but he died from his injuries. Later in the siege, a local man, Martin Cherry, who had helped a number of people inside during that first barrage, including poor John, was himself shot in the groin and badly injured, and he lay on the floor, unable to move himself, right to the end of the siege. Hare was still outside, issuing orders, While the concerted firing had stopped, Hare wanted the hotel completely surrounded, so police rearranged their positions, reducing the chance that the Kellys could escape in the dark. But by now, his injured wrist was causing substantial blood loss, and he needed to retreat to the railway station for treatment. This would be dire for the hostages. Unfortunately, he did not clearly pass on command to any specific officer, and it's probable that this led to more confusion and even less discipline on the site. And so the prisoners trapped in the hotel were in for more terror and danger as the night wore on. The police soon surrounded the hotel and prepared to shoot anyone who emerged. Now bizarrely, soon afterwards, two skyrockets were seen streaking overhead by both police and civilians there, which seemed to have been launched from somewhere near O'Donnell's Hotel, It's possible these were intended by the Kellys to be messages or warnings to family and friends, or to the possible hidden selector army. But with things now severely off the rails from the original plan, we cannot know what that message really meant. 
and soon after witnesses noted Ned and Joe having a brief discussion at the rear of the inn. Joe was heard complaining about the armour, and Ned mentioned his injuries, telling Joe to help him reload his rifle, as he was cooked. Joe responded he was also injured, and may have a broken leg from the bullet wound. He may have suggested that they ditch the armour, and make their escape out the back, unhindered, sneaking past any police, to nearby bush cover. Constable Phillips nearby heard Joe curse the armour, saying, I always said this bloody armour would bring us grief. But Ned disagreed, saying the armour had kept them alive to this point, and he was sick of running and hiding, insisting they should take this opportunity to inflict maximum punishment on the police. Ned told the gang to barricade the windows and doors, and then he headed out the back, possibly to try and come around behind the police, or maybe to meet up with any waiting sympathisers. Joe returned inside to Steve and Dan. Now some accounts have Ned here riding off to some prearranged meeting point, maybe warning sympathisers that the attempt to destroy the train had failed, and urging them to return to their farms. Ned was injured and was probably losing a lot of blood, but he would not want any sympathisers to risk their lives being now so outnumbered. Ned was the very devil to his enemies, but he had proven over and over again to be true and careful of his loyal friends. He, though, was prepared to finish the fight and was ready to die there if need be. As Joe returned to the bar, one of the prisoners told him, now might be a good time to let the civilians go. Joe's response was surly. He said they could try, but they might be shot down by police. And he was right. Someone called on the police to stop. The place is full of women and children. Stop firing. A group did move to the rear of the building, and under cover of the hanging gun smoke, some of the women and children were able to make an escape, led by Anne and Jane Jones. But some others were forced back again when police fire resumed. Towards dawn, Ned began making his return to the hotel, but he passed out and lay semi-conscious for some time, some way from the scene, either from loss of blood or from extreme fatigue, after his 48 hours on guard. About 6am, Joe, still inside, but now conceding the situation, raised a brandy glass to toast the Kellys, and was just then hit in the groin. The bullet, amazingly, just found the gap between the breastplate and the apron of his armour. A witness later recalled, quote, I heard him fall like a dog, and he never groaned or anything, and I could hear a sound like blood gushing. Joe died immediately. His death left the two younger gang members in shock. Another witness recalled hearing them say, What do we do now? No Ned there to lead them and Lieutenant Joe dead, the witness thought the boys seemed defeated with the end in sight. But of course, the police still assumed that they were facing four outlaws, still fighting fit for all they knew, and they showed no let-up in their aggression. This was the downside of the mythical invincibility of Ned and his gang. No quarter would be given, for fear that they would once again slip through the net and embarrass the police force. Constable Bracken from Glenrowan, having escaped the hotel, had then ridden on to Wangaratta for reinforcements, and others had come from the south, so there were now increasing numbers on the scene. Probably emboldened by the thought of a share of the huge reward if they were involved in the capture, many of the police got stuck in, and they continued to fire into the hotel on and off for several hours. Towards dawn, the remaining women and children made another attempt to leave, but many police believed that the Kellys would be trying to escape with them, or that they were sympathisers anyway who deserved any grief they got. So when Margaret Reardon attempted to leave the disintegrating building holding her bundled baby to her chest and leading several children behind her, the merciless Sergeant Steele fired on them one bullet penetrating the blanket swaddling the baby, but mercifully missing the mother and child, though another of the bullets hit and injured her elder boy, 
At this outrage, the nearby Constable Arthur threatened to shoot Steele himself if he did not cease, yelling, If you fire at that woman again, I'm damned if I don't shoot you. Mrs Reardon did make it through the police lines with her baby, but the injured Michael and the other two children had to retreat into the inn. Michael's injury was severe, but he did survive, and he was paid a government pension for the rest of his life. By the morning, there was now a terrific crowd in attendance to see the destruction of the Kelly gang. While the Kellys clearly had a large number of genuine supporters in the area, there may, of course, have been a good number of local selectors who assisted the gang purely out of fear. Anti-Kelly sentiment may have been given its head, now the numbers seemed on their side. And, of course, it was a thrilling spectacle after two years of news about the Kellys, but the siege was not yet over, and more elaborate plans were being made in Melbourne that might assist in success at Glenrowan. During the night, the authorities had made inquiries about getting access to huge arc lighting equipment, which had been lit at the first Aussie Rules night football match at the Victorian MCG on August 6, 1889. I'll post a link to news about that amazing lighting, that would be just the kind of thing that could stop the gang escaping in the darkness. But advice was given that the fierce lighting would just cast too many shadows. And, just as an aside, only two or three night games were ever played under that lighting in the end, as those pesky shadows pretty much made the game unplayable too. They were advised instead to just surround the site with bonfires, which might throw enough light to be helpful. <laughs> they also sent for a cannon an actual 12-pound breech-loading field gun from the Victorian Permanent Artillery, which actually was sent up by train. But it was a time-consuming thing to get it transported, and in the end it only reached Seymour by the time the siege had ended. At some point in the dawn, when Ned had recovered and become aware the boys must still be inside, he dragged himself up and made his way behind a group of police intent on luring the fire away from the hotel. Some of the police noticed a bizarre Frankenstein's monster emerging in the half-light and mist. A giant figure in a greatcoat with a huge head. The figure then raised his revolver, though that was clearly a challenging action for the injured Ned, just as Constable Arthur began shooting at him. The first couple of shots just ricocheted off the armour. Puzzled, Arthur aimed again, but these also just caused Ned to stagger, but he remained upright. Other police now saw the figure and joined in, as Ned taunted, Good shot, boys! Fire away, you buggers! You cannot hurt me! Oh, the bravado of that man, unbelievable. Melvin from the Argus was able to see this activity from his position, and he recorded, quote, He was armed only with a revolver. He, however, walked coolly from tree to tree and received the fire of the police with the utmost indifference, returning a shot from his revolver when a good opportunity presented itself. Unquote. Carrington also witnessed Ned's approach, recording, quote, The figure advanced, stopping every now and then, and moving what looked like its headless neck slowly and mechanically around, and then raising one foot on a log and aiming and firing a revolver. Shot after shot was fired at it, but without effect." Unquote. The shootout itself must have been horrifying enough, but think about what Ned was experiencing inside that armour. The percussion and physical blows, the weight needing to be kept upright against the shot's landing, the lack of vision, and the sure knowledge that the end must come soon, as he used the last of his ammunition, and more and more police turned their attention to him. It is this that has people admiring his fearlessness, despite the fact that he's done a great many bad things. Exposing himself to this punishment is quite a feat. After he's been awake more than 48 hours, substantially wounded and bleeding for the last four of them, what a hero he would have been if those deeds were performed in the Boer War or the First World War, rather than in a yard in Glenrowan against the Victorian police. 
I certainly don't think of him myself as a blameless victim or of a hero in any way, but I can't help being impressed by his stamina and his bravado here, despite the appalling way it's being directed. I guess he expected it to be his last hurrah, so you go out blazing, and maybe that fatalistic attitude allowed him to be so bold. Attempting to buoy up the bravado of the gang inside, he called out, We'll whip the beggars! Lurching under the weight of the armour and the force of the shots, he nonetheless managed to remain upright. The police amazement grew as the bullets bounced from the armour, but they were beginning to catch on, now moving around behind him. And Dan and Steve were now shooting again from the hotel towards the police surrounding Ned. The police called on him to surrender, but he answered, Never, while I have a shot left, and fired a shot back. But he was now down to his last few bullets, having discarded the other weapons as they emptied, not able to reload with his injuries. Sergeant Steele got close enough to fire shot into Ned's legs, and at last they felled him. Steele, Constables John Kelly and Jesse Dowsett then grappled with him and pinned him down. Not that I imagine he could have lifted himself once he'd hit the ground in that iron. And others then also made their way over to the scene. When his helmet was removed, they discovered they had taken down Ned Kelly himself. One officer began kicking him, and Steele readied to shoot Ned then and there. But Bracken intervened to stop him. Once again, a fellow officer had to threaten Steele before he would back off. Bracken saying, you shoot him and I'll shoot you. Take him alive. And saying more generally to the gathering group, I'll shoot any bloody man that dares touch him. Castles recounts Ned also calling out, saying, Don't shoot me. Let me see it out. Let me see it out. So, now faced with it up close, maybe he didn't want to die. Or perhaps he was desperate to at least get one more chance to make his case, no matter how hopeless he might have expected it to be. And so, after all that time in preparation and a long night of fighting, finally, at 7.17am, the badly injured Ned was taken into custody at the Glenrowan station. Steve and Dan saw Ned fall. As I mentioned earlier, they were shooting at the police surrounding him, but they were pretty quickly forced back inside by the returning fire. Ned's capture left Dan and Steve alone, facing the armed police, with about 30 prisoners still trapped inside the building with them. Hare, of course, was long gone, back to Benella, getting treatment for his gunshot wound. And Sadlier apparently took on some element of command at the scene, but he and others continued to show little sympathy for the ordinary folk trapped inside. Time and time again, he refused truce offers from Dan and requests from the many civilians outside to cease fire so that the prisoners could be freed and those that had made it out survived by pure luck, at least one being seriously injured by police bullets in the attempt. A few, we have already noted, had very serious injuries. But of course there would have been many others with more minor but still serious, painful and terrifying injuries too. But as the morning progressed, with more than 600 spectators now looking on, the crowd was horrified about the continuing danger to the civilians and the mood was growing ugly there. At last, the police agreed to give passage, and those who could walk were able to exit one at a time, so that the police could check that each person exiting was not a gang member. Oh, this is just appalling. Our police forces now are so careful to weigh the risks for the hostages in these situations, though of course we also have the benefit of modern, skilled negotiators and communication tools. In this instance, the majority of the danger to the public came from the police fire outside. The gang, who should never have put those people at such risk to begin with, of course, at least appeared ready to release everyone as soon as it became clear they were being fired upon. So the force really had to take responsibility for the civilian casualties during this siege. By midday, all the mobile prisoners were out of the hotel, though poor Martin Cherry was still bleeding and incapacitated inside. They should have become aware from the exiting prisoners that Joe was now dead, but they would not have known what Steve and Dan were up to, perhaps. The police pondered ways to get to the remaining gang members without risking getting any closer. 
Father Gibney happened to be travelling nearby on the morning of the siege, and on hearing of the action, he made his way to Glenrowan, arriving about midday. He made his way to Ned and was allowed to see him as one of his Catholic flock, and Gibney thought he seemed penitent about his actions and the previous loss of life. By now, Ned looked pretty poorly too, and Gibney wondered if he would survive the day. So he heard his confession and he gave him his last rites, you know, just in case. And then he left him to rest, returning to the crowds outside and exploring the local area. Police and onlookers continued to arrive as the day wore on, and the large crowd swelled even further. Some police believe there'd been no firing from the gang since about one o'clock. The odd shots believed to be from inside the building were more likely to be police fire from those surrounding the building, coming through the walls. Either the gang were conserving their ammunition for a final push, or they were likely dead. Around 2pm, the Kelly family arrived. The Kelly women on horseback, looking composed and stunningly dressed. Drawing a lot of attention, Maggie then began making her way down to the inn, but the police refused to let her through, though some had already asked her to persuade the boys to surrender, which she refused to do. The Kellys don't surrender to dogs. Gibney may have tried to convince her that the boys could really use some communion with a priest by now, and she may have considered entertaining that idea, but towards 3pm, with now around 1,000 onlookers on site, the police decided on bringing the siege to a close by setting fire to the building. When Father Gibney discovered the police were planning to burn the hotel, he was appalled, as they were aware the injured Martin Cherry was still in there and, at last report, was still alive. The gung-ho actions of the police once again an indicator that, at this time, the force was in a shocking state and not an asset to the people of Victoria at all. Gibney forced his way through the police lines, no doubt shaming a good number of police and bystanders, and the crowd began to applaud his bravery. And then the police did not stop him. On entering the now-burning building, he saw Joe's stiffened body near the bar, and in the small room nearby, he also noticed the bodies of Steve and Dan, side by side, their heads resting on a roll of canvas like a pillow. It suggested that the boys possibly all of the gang, had carried with them a fatal dose of laudanum or opium or some other kind of poison to use in just such a hopeless situation. And from Gibney's quick take, it did seem like they may have taken their own lives there, rather than be captured by the police. Gibney called out that there was no one inside alive to fire, and a couple of police then also entered the burning building, having just enough time to haul Joe's body out and to help Gibney carry Martin Cherry clear, before the building was totally engulfed. They tried to re-enter to get the boys, but the flames were now too great, and they could see the bodies were already being burnt, their armour stacked nearby, as the ceiling dropped in on them. This horrific scene was visible to the onlookers outside too. At the fence, young Kate Kelly was wailing, "'Oh, my poor, poor brother!' They had their family and staunch supporters with them, Tom Lloyd, Wild Wright, Steve's brother and many others. Now Maggie was howling loudly too. Their supportive clan gathered around them. Joe's body and poor Martin Cherry was carried to the station. Gibney again offered last rites to the still conscious Cherry, but sadly he died within a few minutes. Returning our attention to Ned at the station while all this was going on, Ned's armour had been removed where he was felled and it was brought up to the station, the command post for the police. Someone had taken all the pieces of the armour to the scales on the platform and all were amazed to note that the total weight was more than 97 pounds, that's 45 kilos, and that there were in in excess of 20 dents across the armour from bullets, along with numerous shiny shotgun pellet marks. As Dr Nicholson began removing Ned's blood-stained clothes to get to the wounds, he collected and kept many of Ned's personal items for himself, including that fabulous green sash that Ned had been wearing under his armour. 
the one he received for bravery in Avenel, and which is now on display in the Benalla Museum, still bloodstained from the confrontation that day. During the morning, many people came and went in the room where he was being treated, to simply gawk or to question Ned, including some of the reporters. Across the field of action, in an era where police did not carefully collect evidence, some police and onlookers pocketed the revolvers he had discarded, and there was his overcoat. Souvenir hunters even took parts of the larrikin-style boots, which had been cut from his injured feet by the doctor. Kelly was already a titan in celebrity terms. Dr Nicholson's inspection first noted that while Ned was severely bruised, both eyes blackened and the bridge of his nose and cheek damaged by the helmet slits and fixings, his skin away from the wound sites was clean and healthy. He was well dressed in the usual flash attire the greeter mob were known for, and though Ned had several nasty gunshot wounds, he did not consider any of them to be immediately life-threatening. Though, of course, shock and blood loss may yet set in and take him. Sadly, I asked Ned early on if he could get the gang members inside the hotel sur- to surrender. Ned responded that, quote, They would not mind what I say. Their heart's gone out of them. They won't come out fighting like men. They're only boys. They'll stay in there till they're finished, unquote. And he was right about that. Ned really was the heart and the brawn of the gang, and they became rudderless without him. Of Ned, Sadler recorded, quote, While he lay there, helpless, on a mattress, with a gentle expression on his face, it was hard to think he was the callous and cruel murderer, but the old spirit, half savage and half insane, was there, notwithstanding, unquote. Around 9am, Dr Nicholson sent all the onlookers out, and Ned rested, in and out of consciousness throughout the day. Though to be fair, fatigue alone might have accounted for that. He did not complain about any pain, though he did say he was cold, possibly an indication of shock, and he had asked for brandy to revive himself. In the afternoon, when Maggie and Kate had arrived, Father Gibney was able to negotiate for them to see Ned, Though visibly distressed, they talked freely, Maggie asking why he had not stayed hidden at the end. He gave a long answer, but the main gist of it was contained in the sentence, I wanted to see the thing out. As soon as they could, the police recovered the remains of the two bodies from the smouldering ruins and their suits of armour. The almost unrecognisably charred bodies of Steve and Dan were also laid out at the station. Joe's body had been brought there earlier and had been thoroughly searched. They discovered he was wearing a ring belonging to Scanlon, killed at Stringybark Creek, and another ring whose ownership was unknown. In his pockets were a Catholic prayer book and a brown paper packet marked Poison. They had then propped his body against the fence so that journalists could make drawings. So the scene at the station, the smell and the macabre gawkers crowding in, it must have been totally horrific, gruesome and a heartless sight. The siege had become huge news long before it was over, in Melbourne and around the world, including London, who were getting regular reports almost live, with only a meagre five-hour delay. Many people who were near enough to Glenrowan travelled to the scene to be part of the historic encounter, hence the huge crowd in place when the hotel burned. With the latest train arrival, the place was swimming with reporters and interested persons. Artists were sketching the scenes they had just witnessed, photographers were recording the site, and a temporary telegraph office was sending constant updates to Melbourne and beyond. At this time, Melbourne's population was around 250,000. Apparently, over 100,000 copies of the regularly updated special editions printed were sold there in one day. That's got to be like one or more for just about every person that could read. It was huge news, and everyone wanted to know the sensational details. There was, of course, particular interest about the report of Ned being taken alive 
No doubt, more spectacular witness accounts and breaking news would be coming in for days. It was a newspaper man's dream. Henry Parks, the Premier of New South Wales, had sent a telegram to the Chief Secretary of Victoria on hearing the news. The destruction of the notorious gang was on everyone's mind. Bray, the photographer from Beechworth, who had in years past taken portraits of Ned and a number of the other greeter mob boys, arrived on the Monday and took some evocative pictures during the last day of the siege and its aftermath. He travelled to Benalla following Ned's removal there, also capturing some images, all of which circulated soon afterwards as topical postcards. So that's how it was done before the smartphone. When Kate and Maggie left Ned, they went to view the remains of Steve and Dan. Steve's brother had already come to collect his body, but the police were refusing permission. And with the girls now distraught and crying bitterly, the Kelly's friends began to move in and support them. The tension rose, threatening to spark a riot. The mob siding with the grieving girls and becoming fiercely protective. Dick Hart was heard saying, if the police wanted the bodies, they would have to fight for them. Sadlier, finally thinking wisely, could see that with such a crowd, many armed, things could very easily get out of hand. His main focus was in ensuring there would be no rescue attempt of Ned, and so he decided to yield the remains of Dan and Steve to the sympathisers, though he did warn them they were not to be buried without a magistrate's order. Under Victorian law, the bodies were the property of the authorities until a coronial inquest determined the cause of death. I'm not sure they needed an inquest for that, really. But this placated the family for the moment, and their focus turned to returning Dan and Steve to Greta, to be amongst their clan. Castle records their remains were wrapped in blankets, loaded onto carts and solemnly borne away by the grieving family members. Others suggest that impressive and expensive coffins were brought from Wangaratta to transport the bodies home. Standish's train had just arrived, bringing him from Melbourne, and while he was unhappy about sadly letting the Kellys take Dan and Steve, with the immediate crisis diffused, they both agreed that the safest thing to do would be to take Joe's body and the injured Ned to the safety of the Benella lockup where they could more easily control the environment before the sympathisers decided to turn their attention to them. They carried Ned on board on the mattress he was resting on and the bodies of Joe and Martin Cherry were loaded for Benalla. A number of armed police were tasked with guarding the train and its cargo and so by late that afternoon they retreated south to the Benalla lockup. Back at Glenrowan, the Kellys made their way to Maggie's house at Greta. The boys were laid on the table there, Dan identified as the larger of the two, and the clan gathered for a wake. They didn't trust the police, and they expected them to try and retrieve the bodies, which actually Standish did indeed order once he felt securely settled at Benalla. On Standish's orders, the Wangaratta police magistrate was to conduct an inquiry into their deaths and so was instructed to retrieve the bodies from Greta. Accompanied by large numbers of police, they made their way to Maggie's house, but they met with such a large crowd of sympathisers there, who would clearly not allow the authorities to get near Stephen Dan's remains, that they decided to leave the family to their grief and turn back. Maloney believes that to avoid any such indignity, Dan and Steve were buried there, in the early hours of that morning, in a grave near where Annie was buried, at the Kelly's 11 Mile Creek homestead. He describes horses and logs being used to drag the ground flat and disguise the burial site. Apparently, that information came from one Father Bachelor of Moyu, who knew Jim Kelly well and believed this claim by Jim to be true. But others, including Jones and McMenemy, believed that their burial took place at the Greeter Cemetery. Jones records that after protests, the authorities waived the inquest necessity to avoid any showdown, and the family and a great many friends and supporters took Stephen Dan to the Greeter Cemetery 
where they were placed in a single grave, eight feet square, and left unmarked. McMenemy agrees, stating that their remains were interred in expensive coffins there, a large crowd of over 100 people at the funeral, and it was held on June 30th, 1880. And for an unusual change for activities of the Kellys, no police were in attendance on this occasion. Because their remains were so badly burnt, and I suppose many people just don't want to consider that the Kelly gang was quite fallible, there were ridiculous tales about Steve and Dan surviving and escaping the blaze and being sighted elsewhere over the years. Such stories gave different explanations and suggested different witnesses. And conspiracy theorists even today continue to peddle variants of that myth. Tom Lloyd's later grave at Greta has a very impressive memorial on site, but the double grave that might contain Dan and Steve remains unmarked. The families for generations still suspicious of the authorities and the ghoulish souvenir hunters, preferring to keep all the details about the burial secret. Only fairly recently have the community allowed a memorial plaque at the cemetery entrance to commemorate and record the family losses and to provide some marker for those interested in the Kellys. In the days following the siege, many sightseers came to Glenrowan to gawk, and Ned's blood was visible around the stove in the railway station for several months. Some relics from the siege were souvenired at the time, some collected years later, including a Colt revolver now at Kelly's Theatre in Glenrowan, and a small handgun now held at the Costume and Pioneer Museum at Benella. The Glenrowan Township was settled around the 1860s, mostly supporting nearby farms. By 1880, it had a police station, school and two hotels, McDonald's Hotel, which the Kelly sympathisers preferred, and the Glenrowan Inn, Anne Jones's Hotel, which was established 1878 or 9. So prior to the Kelly siege, there was nothing very special about Glenrowan though for some time afterwards it was to become a notorious place. It remains today a fairly low-key tourist site, considering its history, and the precinct was only heritage listed in the 2000s. There are various plaques and information boards marking the sites of the siege, and it's certainly worth a visit for fans of the saga. On my last visit, I confess some years back now, there was an animated show depicting elements of the showdown. The big Ned statue there was built in 1990 and the railway station has been reconstructed on the original platform. Back in the day, Anne Jones did rebuild her hotel at Glenrowan in the months afterwards. As it had been a lucrative income for the self-supporting woman, but she was refused a license by the police so the Kellys certainly visited all kinds of disaster on her. So we're wrapping up for today. The next episode, we need to see what happens to Ned, and indeed to Joe, after they were both removed to Benella. A court case in Melbourne follows, and then we just need to review what we know, including a bit of a look at the Royal Commission that was held in the aftermath, and the wash-up from the Kelly outbreak for the people of Victoria. So I think probably two more to wrap up this story, but I'll confirm that when the writing has been completed. And then in that last episode, I might talk about some new topics that the Australian Histories podcast might look at in the coming months. As I mentioned at the beginning, I intend to do a few shorter single episode stories. Next time I begin a multi-episode series... And there really are some brilliant stories that will require the long form to get to the interesting details. I may need to leave longer gaps between the episodes. The amount of reading, writing and fact-checking is really a full-time job and sadly I'm not yet in a position to treat it as such. Squeezing that level of research around life's other delights and obligations has been a struggle, though I do love it. Having started on the fortnightly time frame, though, I did want to continue it. 
but I think to avoid burnout, any future multi-episode series may need to be presented on a different production timetable. Three week or monthly. I don't want to rush the job and miss something fun or important. Now, if you have been enjoying the series to date, I might ask you once again to help me promote it by sharing and liking on your various social media platforms and by logging in and giving the show a positive review and a healthy five-star ranking, especially on the iTunes platform, which will help boost its visibility. And for those of you who would like to help me cover the costs of hosting the podcast and purchasing the research materials, there is now a support button for making a donation on the website, if you are able and willing. So, next time, we'll see what happens now the police finally have custody of the famous Ned Kelly. Have a wonderful couple of weeks, and I'll be back to wrap up the amazing story of the Kelly Gang very soon. Cheers. Cheers.